situations and conversations that happen throughout Scripture with Jesus mainly where I'm like, man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. Or at least I wish I could sit with Peter, James, John, and I could sit with him and ask them questions about what it smelled like, what, what was going on in that time, what were the feelings that you had, what did you observe that was happening around you. And yeah, there's plenty of miracles and, and, and times where Jesus did amazing things that I think would be like crazy wild to experience. But quite possibly none, there's not a story in the Bible that's more intriguing to me than the one we're going to look at today, the road to Emmaus. Um, the road to Emmaus where, and, and it, th there's some craziness wrapped up in that. You know, at one moment, Jesus like, disguises himself even though he's hanging out with the disciples they don't recognize who he is when he's talking but um, the road to Emmaus is a story that scripture tells us happened that same day and that same day is the day three days earlier where Jesus had endured and carried the cross he was crucified and he and he had told his disciples that that would happen that was what would happen uh, over and over actually more than once he had told them that that was what was going to happen. And then Joseph of Aramaeth and Nicodemus were granted Jesus's body and they, they took it to the tomb and prepared it and put it and placed it in the tomb. And the details, yeah, for sure were, were, uh, uh, were maybe Jesus didn't share those, but he had told them countless occasions that the disciples, what would happen? He gave them the timetable. I would be arrested. I would be tried. I would be Crucified, and then three days later, I'd be raised from the dead. Three days, not immediately. He didn't say, well, immediately that's going to happen. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Or not just simply, I'm going to be raised from the dead. No, he gave them the timetable of three days. And I often wonder what that was, how did that process with the disciples but we drop in, the, in on this story where we have um, where we have uh, no one there on the third day so I would I, I like to think that in that moment Jesus had told me over and over three days I would rise again three days I'm gonna break out of that tomb I'm gonna defeat death I would think that there would be a crowd of people outside that tomb on that third day like, I mean, show up at dawn and leave at dusk if it hadn't happened. There would just be a, a crowd of people that would anticipate Jesus doing this. Because he had said it over and over again that he would do it. And it's one of these moments, if I could ask Peter or, or Matthew or James or John, really any of the disciples, any of the hundreds or thousands that would follow him, why weren't you there? Like, why didn't you go there? And see, we drop in on this story where the disciples are actually leaving the location as to where Jesus' tomb was, right? On that same day, the two of them, and I believe it, the Scripture tells us it was the disciples. We know what, one was Cleopas, but we don't really know. We're unsure of who the other one was. But they were leaving. They were on a seven-mile journey away from the sight of what had happened just three days earlier and this being the third day. One commentary says it this way. One commentary says that I read this week, and it's one that I actually read, but it said that, uh, that uh, Cleopas obviously had to go back to work. And I think to myself, 
Jesus, our father, probably would qualify for bereavement leave, right, from work at that time. I don't know if they had bereavement leave or not, but uh, in that moment, I think that, man, I don't know that I'd be heading back to work right away. I'd be like, what just happened, right? I think back to my days at Costco, and, uh, and there were more, I worked morning shift at Costco, so like three, four in the morning on into the afternoon. There were times that I called in sick to work because I wanted to go have uh, cinnamon rolls that had just risen uh, from Malt Beat Cafe, right? Like, it, down south. Like, I was like, man, I'm out. Like, I'm cinnamon rolls calling my name, right? And so to have Jesus not only have died, said he was going to rise again on that third day, then to just head back to work. I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to comprehend. But we're going to pick up on the story where this happened. It's in Luke chapter 24. We're going to mainly stay in this part of Scripture. But uh, I want to encourage you, man, if you have your Bible, if you have your phone, you can open it up. You can read along with me. Um, or a lot of the scriptures will be up here, but I'm gonna, this won't be. I'm gonna just read through uh, what is this account. It says, that very day, ESV says the same day, uh, two of them, or no, NIV says that, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with each other about, and uh, walking with each other about, or talking with each other, talking with, they were walking with each other too talking with each other about all the things that had happened. They were talking and discussing them together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love that magic trick, right? I'm a big fan, you know, of magic and, and that kind of stuff, uh, but this is the magic trick that I like. Anyways, he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they like he didn't know. And he said to them, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed, uh, in word before God and all people, and how our chief priest rulers delivered him to be uh, condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one we had hoped, lost some hope there, we had hoped that he was the one, the, uh, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since things had happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they went and did not find his body. They came back saying that, uh, that, even, uh, that they had even seen angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found, just, found it just as the women had said, and, uh, but they did not see him. All right, so here we have written in there the account of these two disciples, and in there it said, they're talking past tense. We had thought he was this. We had thought he was that. We, uh, you know, his body wasn't there anymore. And, and, and it said in there that they were sad. And so they were mildly defeated as to what had happened. Maybe even thinking to themselves that they didn't even, you know, even though they were told, they weren't comprehending what was going on. They were defeated. Hope was lost. They didn't have the understanding of what Jesus had told them what would happen and why it would happen. And here's the deal, that everything in this moment 
pointed to what Jesus had said was going to happen, to him, to his glory. All this happened for his glory. And the disciples in this moment hadn't really comprehended that yet. They didn't understand it. In verse 25, it said, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all, all the prophets have spoken. Was, not, was it not necessary, this is Jesus saying this, was it not necessary that Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was all a part of God's glory, of Jesus' glory of what was to happen. And I'm struck by, I don't know if the lack of confidence is the right word or the assurance, uh, but church, all, that the disciples had in that moment, but it all pointed and brought about God's glory to this point. And this is what, this is the moment that I wish, I wish I was there. I wish I was there for this. It says this in verse 27, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all, uh, interpreted to them in all of the scriptures and all the things concerning himself. So on that walk, however far into the walk that they were, Jesus put on the ultimate of Bible studies. The ultimate of Jesus studies, because they weren't actually opening their Bible. They were talking scripture, it says there. But he put on what would be the ultimate Bible study. And I would have loved to just sit in and soak in from Moses throughout all the prophets and the understanding that Jesus in that moment, and I don't even know, if it might have even been like a USB download. Like, I can't imagine he covered it all. But it Scripture said it did, right? That would be the Bible study to attend from Moses to the prophets. And I tell you, church, all of Scripture, all of Scripture points to Jesus from the beginning and the table of contents all the way to the maps at the back of your Bible. All of it points to Jesus's glory, his presence and his glory. And in that time with these two disciples, Jesus, yes, it says uh, from uh, Moses to, uh, they only had Old Testament, so Moses to the prophets of the Old Testament. But I, I read, I read, I didn't, I, I've read it all, but I, I kind of skimmed over all to see all that was covered. And, and all that is Christ is, is in that section of Scripture, as well as to go into the New Testament as well. And I think, I think it would have been something like this. I think Jesus would have said, I was the bush leading Moses. I was the blood that passed over on that, that was passed over on that first Passover. I parted the seas. I am the temple in which we would meet at in the Old Testament times. And at night I was the cloud and, and fire by day. I would lead you, my people, out. He would say, I, in Leviticus, I established myself as the holy and set apart to be holy. In Numbers, I displayed victory, a victory that you now have in me. In Deuteronomy, I am love, first love, love of the past, love displayed now, and love for your future. In Joshua, I was a trustworthy promise that was to come. In Judges, he was the continued clarity and the call of all nations to their neighbors. In Ruth, he was the light in the darkest of times, the Redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he says, I, my promises will endure forever, and it is for all of mankind, and I was the one that would face all of your giants. In Kings, I am the constant to be first above all else. All forgiveness and restoration is in me. In Nehemiah, 
I establish myself as the rebuilder in Psalms. He establishes himself proven to hear our cries to him. I am the rock, a fortress, a redeemer, king of kings, the strength and the shield. And Ecclesiastes, although life is a vapor or a mist, we studied Ecclesiastes a few years ago, life is temporary. He says, I am the everlasting. In the Song of Solomon, he says, I am your lover. In Isaiah, we, we often quote it at, script, uh, at Christmas, I am a wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. In Jeremiah, I am a comfort and a way forward in the times of the decline and hardship in your life. Amen to that. He was the fourth in the fire. He is a river of justice. In Hosea, he was the faithful husband to an unfaithful bride. The promise concerning him of the Old Testament. We know the stories that Jesus not only came, but he also came, died, and was resurrected and defeated death. And so we know even moving forward into the New Testament, he is the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, born a baby, full of the flesh of man, but also complete in the deity of God. He is the spirit given to us, the, the, word, uh, the word given by flesh to us. He is all wisdom and power. He is the bridge between us and the Father. He is the Redeemer who has lived. He, 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 who, he, who, he is who was, is, and is to come. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. He is the Anointed One. Scripture tells us he's the cornerstone, and he is all glory and honor and power in all things. Amen. I heard that. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega in, in Revelations. He is the image of God in all of his glory. See, it has or it was or it, it will always be about God's glory. Scripture points back to Jesus in all of his glory. And the very essence of this series that we've been looking at, motivated by glory, is the essence of everything pointing back to Jesus and his glory in our lives. Everything points to his and glory. And so I ask you, I love being challenged by asking you a question. I asked you the question this morning, does your life do the same? Does your life do the same that is written all throughout Scripture and bringing glory to Christ? Does your life point to Christ in his glory? I think of it this way. Uh, when you walk around in life, you know, with, your, with your, uh, your own theme song going on, your own soundtrack in your head. How many of you got a soundtrack playing in your head all the time? Just me and Jarrett? Oh, we got it. We got it. Yeah. I mean, I got a soundtrack. I'm like, this is my soundtrack, right? And so uh, I've got it playing on my head. But how often in life are we playing through our soundtrack, strolling through our life, and we become the center of everything? We become everything that revolves around, everything revolves around us around me. Every, in, every influence and impact is about development of myself. We can fall into that track and not even realize we're there. And in doing that, we have a second story that is written all throughout Scripture as well. Not only God's glory, but there's a second story written throughout Scripture, and that is God's creation. How in the beginning God created light and dark and he created heavens and earth and the land and the water and the dirt. And then God made his greatest creation. He created you and me. He created man. 
And in doing that, mind you, he created us in his image. God then handed the reins, so to speak, over to us. And I mean that by saying he allowed us to have the choice as to what we would do with our own lives. The choice of what we would put at the center of the equation. Right? And then see Genesis in the garden and Moses as his people in the desert. In the cycle of Old Testament, uh, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and then the Lord redeemed, you know, like over and over David in his life, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even the disciples that we looked at in, in Peter. And we even do it with the Bible, you know, when we look at these characters and think, I want to be like David or I want to be like uh, Daniel or Noah or these characters that we talk about. We are not the main character of the story. None of us. In our lives, we are not like the headliner first line on the credits when it rolls, like starring, and then we're not number one. We are not meant to be the main character in our life. We are a secondary role to the glory of God in our lives, period. That is what we are designed to do. And uh, I, I heard it this way. I'm going to steal this analogy because there's nothing new. The Bible tells us there's nothing new. But the idea of sin, S-I-N, is when we put the middle letter I, oh, it just showed up small there. I made it really big. Maybe online it's really big. But the I in the middle, when, when that's us, like that's the core of sin. It's me. It's when I make it about me, I. I is in the middle. And when I make it about myself, that's when sin creeps in. And our, quite frankly, our stages in life are, are meant this way, right? We were blessed to have a baby come and hang out with us last night at our house. But when babies come out, we talked about this at men's group. When babies come out of the womb, what's the center of their focus? Themselves. Like they cry when they're hungry. They cry when their diaper's poopy. You know, all they do when they're, when they're tired, they just cry. And they just like cry. And it has to be about them. We have to meet every need that they have. So even at the very beginning, that happens. And then you get into uh, younger children, and they think the life, the world revolves around them and what they want and they desire, and usually that's centered around like Minecraft or like, you know, tablet time or whatever it may be, but it's all about them. And then you have teens who tend to test the boundaries of what is their life and their sky and the color of their sky and their world and how easy it is. I love my teenagers, by the way. Uh, then we have young adults who establish themselves in their self-image and, and, and whether or not they're married and whether or not they can start a family and whether or not they've got the career. And then we jump into adulthood where we focus on career, family, finances, and the development and establishment of my, my firm foundation, which is in this world, which is what I have to do to survive and live. And we have what we're those things that we're holding on to, and we talked about these in the, in the previous weeks, right? Finances, success, image, knowledge, gaining approval, self-image, politics, personal agenda, all those things begin to kind of creep in and become the center of everything that we are. And the problem is, the problem isn't even necessarily all those things. It's when we take those things and we place them in the center where God's glory should dwell. And his presence should be in at the center of all things. And then we become this main character of our own story and our own life and, how we, and what we choose to live and die for. 
and the life or the hole that is in our life, the void that is in our life, uh, is a hole that can only be filled by God's glory and his presence dwelling in our hearts. Any of that other stuff is temporary and it's chasing, like we're chasing it. Right? And in verse 44, it says this, And then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the laws of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And we'll get to this more in a second, but I often wonder um, if we really believe that. Like every, all those promises that I read to you about who God is, do we believe that to be true? I want to encourage you with something. I think it's going to be encouragement, challenge, I don't know, but I want to encourage you with something this, this morning. In Matthew eleven eleven, it says this. It says, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, um, there has arisen one no greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus was a big fan of John the Baptist. Like, like, like Jesus would have followed John the Baptist on like Twitter, right? Or would he, would he Snapchat John the Baptist? I don't know. The teenagers are looking at their phones. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> but, but he was a big fan of John the Baptist. And, and, and there's none greater born of woman, so that's everybody in the room, um, none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So I heard it put this way. In this room today, eh, 65 people, maybe. There's a least of these among us, just by math, common math. And so uh, how many of you think you're the least of these in this room? Good, I was confident it was me anyways. So God says about me that the least, I didn't want to embarrass anybody, that's why I rose my hand, um, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So all of you, born of woman, some of you lesser than others in the kingdom of heaven, we can unpack that, in, or you can unpack that on your own. We can do a whole series on that. I don't know what that means exactly, but that's not the point. The point is we are greater than one of Jesus's, like, biggest fan, like the, the person that Jesus loved and Jesus was a big fan of, and that's John the Baptist. That's pretty crazy. You heard me say, like a few weeks ago, I was like, I'm not even close to Peter. And then this week, I'm going to retract that statement and says, actually, by Scripture, I'm greater than Peter. But it's, but it's found in that us as believers today have more of a complete understanding of the resurrection, of what happened. We also have what John the Baptist didn't have was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God living in us. And if we're willing to allow that to take shape and rock and formation in our lives, we are greater than those that we read about or those that we talked about in the Old Testament. Because we actually have God dwelling inside of us. And, and, and here's the deal. I think oftentimes... Um, and this is going to be kind of a motivation piece for us. Oftentimes, I think we can get discouraged. Like, we don't know our Bible enough. And, you know, I mean, 
you know, obviously I'm not called to ministry like Jason is, like he's up on stage, and I'm just going to kind of bank on that, like that that's his job, or Tanya who's paid to hang out with our kids, or even some of our higher-level volunteers, of which we are all invited into the volunteer uh, for the kingdom purpose of God. And so for motivation piece, it says this, Then he opened their minds so that they could understand Scripture, and he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and raise uh, suffer uh, will rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So let me read that again. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name of all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So what, 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 what is made here is two declarations. One, Christ will suffer and die and be raised again. And two, what does it say there? It says, repentance and forgiveness will be preached, not optional. So you may think you had a choice in this, but if you've placed your faith and hope in Jesus, that is will happen in your life. That is what he desires for you. And, what, and I, get, I get that there's callings. I get that there's uh, people who will lead the work that's been done in Haiti and Mexico and Hopefully Afghanistan and Yakima. Some kids went to Yakima. We'll hear from them next week. But I get there's a time for preparation for callings in our lives. Like callings that maybe some are called to and some aren't called to. And that God prepares us even in journeys to do amazing things. And I actually even get that because I've experienced in my life that there's healing that needs to happen. That that whatever's going on in your life, you actually have to do some work on healing before it becomes a glory story for God. But I kind of got to tell you, the healing process actually displays the glory of God as well. But I get some of those things that happen in our life. But the declaration is, is that it will be preached. As followers of Jesus, we no longer have an option when and when not we display the glory of God. We have a choice but God says that is, that is the bar, that you display God's glory in all things in your life. God said to his disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So if you've chose to follow Jesus, you are fishing after souls that are lost. And I tell you what, that is the most important work to be done on this planet. More important than whatever, AU tournaments or or, uh, you know, uh, hanging out with friends or going out on Friday night or movie nights on the lawn. Like, like glory of God and displaying his glory in all things. Fishing for the lost souls in life. And what I'm talking about is our everyday life. The everyday decisions. That's where the options, the everyday things that we do in our lives is what Jesus is desiring for us to give to him for his glory. In, in verse 48, it says, Luke 24, 48, it says, you are witnesses of these things, of the promises, of the, of the, the things that are of me. You are a witness to these things. So church, whether you think you have a choice in it or not, you don't have a choice. What you do with your life and how you do it is not whether or not, but where and how you are displaying God's glory in your life. 
That means that whatever it is, whatever it is that you're good at, I, I love that we're all good at totally different things. Because whatever you're good at, I might not be good at. But whatever you're good at, God has desired you to use that for his glory. Wherever you work, wherever it may be, it's different from me. So that's your job, to display God's glory in those moments. However you raise your children, I am not there in your house. I fall short in my own. I can't really get involved in yours. But here's the deal. God's glory is to be displayed in those moments. And what we, what we kind of fall in the habit of doing is compartmentalizing and not allowing God's glory to be displayed in certain areas at certain times because of choices we make that quite often fall on our selfishness. So instead of being a decision about money, recognition, status, and location, where we have the most impact, what, what is the deciding factor is based on, in those things, what is the deciding factor is based on God's glory and what he's up to in those areas of your life? What if we all made decisions in our life not about, like, what's a good fit for us right now or what's going to cause us financial stability or, uh, you know, uh, what's easy for our weekly schedule? What if scratch all that off the table and the decisions are based on displaying God's glory and what he's up to? Might be the same decisions, but it's our mindset to put him at the center of it, Right? Is the glory displayed in your life line up with the generosity and the value that Christ, what he did for you, right? He didn't die, uh, he didn't do or he didn't die and give his life of generosity and sacrifice so we could squabble over mask wearing and vaccines on social media. Like that's not why he died, right? He didn't die so that we could huddle up in our buildings and be inspired by a balding overweight forklift driver. I drove forklift for 15 years at Costco, so that's me, just so you know, right? Jesus actually said in Scripture, it is better that I go. It is better that I leave you. It is better that I suffer on a cross, right? John 16, 7 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him does your life justify that scripture does the life you live justify it is to your advantage that i died and sent my spirit with you like if you were to step back and take and analyze your life would you think you know what my life's better because the holy spirit is 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 like super active in it is are the choices that i'm making displaying God's spirit and his glory in my life? Does your life line up and justify that statement of, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come, but if I go, I will send him. Is that truth exemplified in your life? I, uh, up until this past week, I often thought, Oh, well, I didn't walk. I wasn't walking with Jesus at that time. Like, I mean, I get why they're so, like, holy, and they've got this, I mean, they write some really cool stuff. Like, God divinely pinned some really cool stuff in here, and I think 
man, it would have been really great to hang out with him. But is my, am I as excited that it is better for me now than even the people that walked the earth with Jesus? Like the disciples that walked shoulder to shoulder with him, I envy them. I'm like, how oh, they got to hang out with Jesus? But Jesus actually says, it's better. You have it better now. Because I gave you my spirit. You have access to a better life than the disciples. And Peter, James, John, Matthew, David, whatever character of the Bible, you're like, man, fan mail him. Like, he's great. I wish I could have more faith like him. No, Jesus says, better now. Because I gave you my spirit. Instead of living out of what I think, you know, I kind of, maybe this is just for me, or maybe you can relate to this. Instead of living out out of the forgiveness of Christ on the cross, because I can, because I, I mess up often, and I live out of that, oh, I'm forgiven, forgiven, forgiven again, forgiven again, forgiven again. Like, I bank on that. Instead of living out of the forgiveness of the cross, what if we pressed into living out of the glory that he's no longer there? That he's no longer on the cross. That he's actually off the cross, indwelling in our lives. And he desires to lead us into the best life possible. His spirit is better than. And so we're called to the better than life now than of the past.